0: Welcome back to the How to Write a Book Podcast. I am your book coach and publisher, Maciel Valenzuela. All right, in today's interview, we dive in with Mark Stephen Poro and his memoir, A Cup of Tea on the Commode. And it was delightful to talk with Mark. I think for myself, it hit home because when you have you know elderly parents or grandparents who are in need of care, or they are in need of your help, um, that definitely resonated with me. And it was lovely to talk about his experiences and how he collects his thoughts as he was diving into his memoir. And I think you're going to find this very insightful and also possibly something that you can do in any stage of your life for anything that you want to capture. All right, let's dive in. Welcome to the How to Write a Book podcast, the show that helps you plan, write, and publish your book, even if you're a beginner or just feel like one. Now, for your host, she's written over a dozen books and helps others bring their books to life. Here she is, Maciel.
1: All right. Welcome back to the How to the Book podcast. Today we are welcoming Mark Stephen Poro, author of A Cup of Tea on the Commode, My Multitasking Adventures of Caring for My Mom and How I Survived to Tell the Tale. Welcome, Mark. How are you today?
2: I am great. Thanks very much. So, uh, this is, if people are watching, this is, uh, my, uh, my home in the south of France. So, uh, life is, life is rough and someone had to volunteer to suffer in the middle of, uh, it's it's uh, it's a little village called uh, Pezenas, and it's about eighty five hundred people. And they say this is where Moliere was born. So it's a very artsy and very uh, uh, has a lot of political art and architectural history. But there's the, the village is filled with craftspeople and musicians and and actors, and they have a little bit of a walk of fame like Hollywood. It is it is just a very cool place. I, I came to visit uh, in. April of 2015, and I was here for five days. And I said, "This will be my home." And oh wow! I, I bought this apartment, which was built, they say, in 1540. And uh, it is just, it, it is, it, it's a, a very cool, and they're very forgiving because I was never expecting to uh, come to France and live here. Uh, so I have no French or very little French, and they're very good and very, very forgiving down here. I've heard Paris is a little bit different. But here, if you say bonjour and au revoir and mercy, they they, they they will they will embrace you.
1: They'll accept that.
2: It's very nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So you've been
1: there since 2015.
2: Uh, well, no. Uh, 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 I put the offer in and it was accepted. It took 17 months to uh, finalize the deal. Uh, things. Uh, France likes paper, or as we say, papier, papier here. And uh, navigating the French financial systems was quite a chore, for especially for an American trying to get a mortgage here. Uh, but it all worked out. You have to learn patience. You have to uh, not be the uh, crazy American wanting things like this. You have to, Tom, when in Rome or in this time when in the south of France, you need to uh, relax and um, it's great because they I, they have it right about uh, the way the way to live. It's it's very calm and relaxing. And they say the uh, the only way to make a Frenchman do something fast is to stick him in a car because their personality completely changes there. They're they're Formula One racers. <laughs> they're they're crazy, but other than that, they're pretty kicked back. I do. Well, like like Southern California too. It's 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 very similar weather-wise and. And I think attitude-wise, it's like yeah, whatever.
1: <laughs> I had no idea that about about um, the French and cars. So that's that's cool. I've learned that something new today. Um, yeah. So we, I'm I'm fascinated by your book. Um, but before we get into your memoir, can you tell us a little bit about yourself? You know, speaking of Walk of Fame, you are also an actor. Can you tell us your background?
2: While well, retired, and I can speak now because the uh, the strike has ended, um, so I grew up in New Jersey in Ridgewood, New Jersey, and um, I am one of six children i 'm the fifth i 'm the third son, and the uh, fifth out of the six. so I have a younger sister, and my mother was into the arts. Um, she worked full-time as a proofreader for the largest newspaper in New Jersey for 30 years. My dad was a chemist, but my mother loved the arts, and I think after she started, she was a Catholic mother, so she had to have the kids, and I think that kind of curtailed her uh, art career. And so she got us all into ballet, so we were performing very early. My first job was in Lincoln Center when I was about seven years old uh, in a ballet with the Royal Danish Ballet, and I got paid five dollars a show. And it was it was it kind of hooked me because it was, you know, the money was great. When you're seven and five dollars was huge. It was also probably my best career uh, a year because five dollars a show was pretty good. They go, why do they think Hollywood's so rough? The last play I did in Hollywood was the equity waiver play. I got paid the same amount. 5 dollars a show you know 50 years later so it was uh, uh kind of a uh, uh uh i i guess a bit deceptive but we so then i performed for quite a while and then i wanted to be a doctor so i i quit the arts or at least the the, the dance and um i went to ohio state to go to medical school and decided medical school wasn't going to be uh, right for me because i had a very creative side that kept put, coming out And so I I switched over to industrial design, which I didn't even know existed, and that married art and science and math. So all my loves all came together, which was very nice. And uh, at the time, happened to be one of the best schools in the country. So I really lucked out, Uh, whether it's my angels or serendipity or what, but I lucked out there. And then I worked for one of the best design firms in the country um, after that. And then uh, the acting bug somehow came back up. So in uh, 84, I moved out to L.A. to become an actor. So I started studying right away, and I did that for 28 years while still doing designing for the – uh during the lean times and – uh so uh, Hollywood was good. It was a lot of fun. And then you get to a point where if, if you're not well-established or you don't have great representation, you kind of age out. So I was starting to age out, and I started a snack food company. I started a lot of companies. And uh, I, I met my niece's uh, father-in-law at, at the wedding, and he asked me what I did. And I said, I started five nonprofit companies. And he looked at me like I was Jesus. And I said, <laughs> I said none were intended to be. And um so uh, uh, I've had a lot of uh, ups and downs in the business world, and um uh, so the last thing I was doing was uh, my dad invented a snack he called Nutronuts, and then we changed it to Grandpa Poe's Originals. It was a half-pop popcorn that he invented in 1963 to give us an alternative to junk food and candy and things like that, and it was a, it was a great and a big. Uh, a, a family secret, but a big hit with our family. Um, but a, a difficult process, and my dad tried to get a patent in a number of times, and that didn't work. And um, then he got tired of making it. Uh, uh, there was a big company that wanted it but didn't want to give him such a good deal, so he got off of that. So um, I revived it like 20 years later. Uh, when I was in Hollywood and started making it and testing it with my actor friends and then a lot of casting people and a lot of other people in Hollywood. And I met all, you know, it was great. And then eventually we got into the stores. So in honor of my dad, unfortunately, he passed before we were actually in the stores. But we became a national brand uh, for a while. But when you're dealing in that kind of thing, um, you're up against the big boys. And uh, they will, if they can't buy you, they'll try to squash you. And so it was a tough struggle. And then in the middle of that, um, in 2011, I get a call from my brother back in New Jersey. At this point, my mother was living in her house. And this is the subject of the book. And that's, this is when my life kind of changed. So I got a call saying she just kind of shut down and she, she seemed to kind of will herself to die. She wasn't ill, uh, but she just kind of gave up. She was not happy. We had, um, people in the house kind of overlooking uh, the household chores and things like that. And they did not get along well. And my mother kind of ended up being a kind of a prisoner in her own home. And, um, so we all came back and she was, uh, semi-comatose in her bed. Uh, hospice was called. The doctor cut off all medi- medications and food. And, um, we had a priest come in and give the last rites and we were ready to say goodbye. And uh, so we we started our vigil, and uh, when hospice is called, they're normally uh, contracted for about six months, and the end is usually death. Um, so we had a steady stream of nurses because my mom was still alive, and so for, for weeks and weeks we had a, a number of nurses, and they were supposed to follow a directive of no food and no drink, and, um, and leave her in bed, let her go. She's transitioning, just let her go. And, uh, so this one nurse came in, and, uh, my sister and I met them at the door because we had a few others that kind of broke the rules, uh, uh, which a lot of them do, uh, some to the benefit of the patient, some maybe not so much. So this one, uh, listened to the directive that we, we read for them, and then she goes into my mother's room, and my mother would open her eyes very infrequently, never said a word. This is now several weeks. And she leans in and she says, Mrs. Poro, would you like something to eat? And my sister and I almost jumped over the bed and, and tried to, to tackle this woman. And my mother's eyes snapped open for the first time in weeks. And then she accused us of starving our mother to death. So then she went in, she called her supervisor and, and uh, uh, repeated the accusation. The supervisor said, listen, you broke the rules, leave. So she left in a huff. And now I'm thinking, oh, my God, is this person right? Are we starving our mother to death? So I go in and my mom is, opens her eyes. I said, Mom, are you hungry? And she says, What do you got? First words in several weeks. So I said, anything you want. And she goes, how about some pumpkin pie? Well, this is March. And it's not really pumpkin pie season. So my brother who lived close by, um, I asked him if he could go out and take a chance and look for some pumpkin pie. He came back and I guess somewhat of a miracle with two pumpkin pies within a half hour. And uh we gave her the, the first bite she spit out because it was several weeks of no food. And we said, well, that didn't go so well. Let's try again. We tried again. She downed half a pie and she woke up. And the next day she finished the second half. And the next day she finished the, the full pie. And then she moved on to other uh sherbet was the next thing. Eight bowls of sherbet a day. We had to keep going to the store, d- deplenishing all the, and it's hard to find sherbet in the winter but we did and we kept filling bowls up and she was awake and we realized you know this is not a great diet especially she was a type 2 diabetic and we said she might be riding the most amazing sugar high but we're not going to change a thing because she was back she was talking she was happy and um i have a chapter in a book uh, uh titled a silent scream and i think this was a silent scream for help she was not happy with the the people who were taking care of her and so she wanted her children to come back to fill the house and her life again with, uh, with love. And so um, I asked her at one point, I stayed with her for several weeks. And then um, I asked her at one point if she wanted me to come back and take care of her. And she said yes. And so I moved from uh, L.A. to uh, back to my childhood home. And, uh, and we had a, a three and a half year journey. And it was it was pretty interesting because I was a, a a carefree bachelor, no wife, no children, and uh, my first child was a eighty nine year old guilt tripping, stubborn as all get out lady.
1: <laughs> guilt tripping is probably the key the key yep. thing there when it comes to parents.
2: Mothers are good at that. So they say that Jewish mothers invented guilt tripping and Catholic mothers perfected it.
1: Oh wow.
2: And my mom was one of the best. So it was, it was, uh, but overall very good. Uh, we, both of my parents had a very good sense of humor. And my mother, I told her early on, I said, we're going to have fun. If we do this, we're going to have fun. And my goal was to make her laugh at least once a day. And she ended up making me laugh quite a bit. So we, 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 we did, it wasn't all perfect, but it was, uh, it was pretty good. And, and we laughed a lot. And, uh, um, yeah.
1: What, at what point, so, you know, you, you're kind of inside this moment where you're transitioning between, you know, nurses, you, you and your family trying to figure out what's going on, uh, and then you decide, you know, maybe I'll come back and I'll take care of you, mom. Was that a very crystal clear moment for you or was it something that kind of you, you were seeing it as you were there?
2: Um, well, definitely with the, the situation, uh, and the circumstances, it made it very clear to me that, uh, uh, it's your mom and, uh, at that point I, I hadn't been home for quite a while. Normally I'd be home a few times a year. Uh, she became a grumpy, I, I call it in the book an Archie Bunker type and I just didn't want to be around her for a while. So, uh, it, it had been probably at least a year since I'd been home. Uh, i made phone calls and things like that to kind of ease my guilt, but, um, it's still your mother and she deserved better. And, um, uh, while I was there for those weeks, I saw that our house was no longer the happy, welcoming place we grew up in. Uh, it needed a lot of repair. And, um, uh, the, the, the people there were not, uh, I gotta be careful because I, 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 I and some of these, um, interviews, I've, I've gone after them. So, uh, they were, they, they had a different perspective on things, but, uh, my mother did not like them, and they did not like her, and they pretended too much. And my mother had a really good BS detector. So if you try to pull some things on her, she became very difficult to deal with. And I had to deal with some of that myself, so I could kind of understand it. But it's like uh, if it's not working out, go. And they didn't. They wanted to stay because they had a pretty good deal there. And so uh, – Part of my uh, motivation to move there was to get rid of them. Mm-hmm. And um, being an Italian from Jersey, we have options, but we we took the legal option <laughs> and gave them a notice, a generous notice. But uh, but once they left, um, uh, it, it's it, it's interesting because uh, your your mother at that point is literally her life is in your hands. Mm-hmm. and um and it was a I it, it i knew this was going to be a special time and and so i i had a history of recording uh uh family events and stuff for <laughs> for the family so when we had uh we used to have uh annual uh summer vacations with everybody in the second generation so we had three generations together and i used to write poems to sum up the the week events um and then um Uh, I took my dad to Italy with a little village where his father came from a hundred years earlier. And I shot a documentary of that. And, um, uh, I put together memory books of special birthdays for everybody, including aunts and uncles and well, no uncles, no uncles were alive at that point, but, uh, my aunts and my parents and then my siblings, and then my nieces and nephews got wedding gifts of these, uh, special things. So, um, I wanted to record this because there are a lot of intimate moments that I'm dealing with with uh, 24-7 care, uh, that people were going to miss out on. And I wanted to make sure they, they, uh, uh, they knew kind of what we went through and some of those, those shared some of those special moments. So uh, I took a lot of notes. I took videos, a lot of photos. And I, I wasn't exactly sure what form they would take. Uh, it ended up being a memoir, but uh, I didn't know at the time. But um, there were some other people going through the same thing. And so they would uh, I would share what I was going through and they got a benefit out of it, which was nice. And they thought I was a hero. And I didn't think of it as that. I just think it's the right thing to do. And um but I said, I think we have something here because a lot of us, especially baby boomers, we're all going to go through this. And um, I think they say the stats are like 426 million people will be 80 years or older by 2050. Mm. So if they're, if we're not going through it, you're going to go through it at one point um, or you're going to know somebody who's going to go through it. And so uh, I think the ones that have been there can help. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's easy to, you know, put them in assisted living or, or, or a nursing home or something like that. But, uh, to take over the 24 7 and to, I guess, give them the, uh, the last years, the, 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 the best last years of their lives is, is what we should be doing. Mm-hmm. And uh, so that was, that was my quest. And, um, uh the book kind of uh, encapsulates my journey it's not a how-to book it's what i did and if people get a benefit out of it great but it's also very entertaining there's a lot of flashbacks and old stories that kind of helped pave the way for me to take this journey on because my mom and and i and my dad too had very special relationship uh, i was a very curious kid and whether it was my acting training or um in design, you're, you're doing, let's say, human-centered design. So you learn empathy very early on. And you have to know your audience and study them and study human behavior and stuff like that. So I got my parents, because they were from that generation where you, you kept your emotions close to the chest and, and, uh, I got them to open up. And, um, so this, it, it was easy for, for them to certainly trust me. I only had eight days with my dad. Unfortunately, he had heart disease. And so he went very quick, but we had a great eight days and that'll be the subject of the next book. Um, mm-hmm. but with mom, I didn't know how long it was going to be. And, uh, but, uh, yeah, so uh,
1: that's, yeah, I, I would like, we kind of talked about, uh, before, um, I, feel like your book was something that hit me in my heart because I watched my mother take care of her mother and well she was she had um some help because they have like six she has six sisters and a couple of brothers at that time so they were able to diversify but um some of what I saw you know I read the bio of your book and I was like yeah that that's something that hits my home because then I would see my mother you know trying to be there my grandmother was kind of slipping away so I know that that's going to help a lot of people and help them navigate the stuff that they're going to go through. And that's a really interesting statistic. I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So oh, go ahead.
2: No, I mean, yeah, those things I find shocking too, but we're, we're living longer.
1: Yeah, and, exactly. And,
2: and, and the problems that that's creating, I mean, it's lovely that we're all living, but it for the healthcare system and everything else is just a massive. So right. if, if we can take it upon ourselves, because, also, with my parents, I don't want to ruin the ending, but they both died in their bed at home, surrounded. I was with both of my parents when they took their last breath, and uh, I had a, uh, my youngest sister was with me with mom, and my oldest sister was with me with my dad. And it's it's beautiful, and it's it's a sad thing and somewhat surreal, but it is a uh, it, it, if you do the right thing, it's a it's a beautiful thing. Uh, there was no regrets, uh, both with my mom and dad. I don't think we left anything unsaid. Um, they, they knew maybe a lot about me, maybe more than they wanted to, or certainly people who read the book go, Oh, wow, well, I really know you now, because there was no, with my mom, there was, no, no uh, line that I did not cross because I, I did everything from from the medical stuff until, you know, changing the diapers and the bedding and washing and cleaning and shopping. And and I um, my mother treated she worked full time, had six kids, but she treated herself to a weekly uh, uh, mm-hmm. beauty salon. Um, and so she got a shampoo and a set. And her, uh, a manicure. She was a hand model when in her youth. Long, beautiful, natural nails her whole life. And, um, so she's there and she doesn't look great. Uh, her, her hair was long again, which was nice because, you know, she had used to have perms and stuff when growing up with all these kids. So now her hair was long again and no makeup. And her nails, I think, were done, but nothing else. And it was like, she deserves better and, and people don't lose that desire to feel pretty and and, and so I, I bought her a new wardrobe was one of the first things I did because these, these old people clothes, I said, it's not going to work, not in my house, not with my mom. And, um, and the day dresses and night dresses were drab and tattered and stuff like that. And so I, I, I tell people in the book, there's a market niche for this because I could not find nice stuff if you're looking for things for seniors. So I, I I took out the senior thing and started looking at regular uh ladies' clothing and stuff like that and, and uh and she looked great and she was happy with that and then I created Day of Beauty. So uh one day a week, it was originally on, on a Sunday, but my mom was a, once a Catholic, always a Catholic. We had to switch it. And I averted my uh, spending eternity in hell by making it a Saturday. And I tried to recreate the, uh, the, the beauty salon treatment. I don't know when the last time she was at a beauty salon. So um, I always give her uh, the two uh, full sponge baths in the morning and night. And, um, and then, so, uh, we had a commode next to the bed and she could no longer walk. She was bedridden from this day that I uh, took her on. And, 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 uh, so that was it. I had to carry her everywhere or, or, or we had a wheelchair. Um, so we had a commode bedside and so I would get her up on the commode and soak her feet in Epsom salts and wash her hair and blow dry it and then, uh, take care of any medical things. And then she got a massage and, uh and um, uh, body lotion and things like that, and then got her dressed up and let her pick the wardrobe that she wanted to wear that day and then uh, uh, put her hair either in a ponytail or for bonus points of braiding and after blow-drying it and stuff like that, and then I uh, gave her uh, her red lipstick to match her red nails. And the first day I did this, I didn't think much of it because um, – it's your mom, and it's it's a woman thing or whatever. And uh, as I'm wheeling her, after I got her ready for uh, breakfast, I would wheel her into the kitchen. Well, we passed the big dining room mirror, and I parked her in front of that mirror, and she's ag- aghast at herself. She's just gaga. And I'm like, who is that pretty girl? And and she just beamed. And, and, the, and the effect, the profound effect of that, I guess, day of beauty that gesture that small thing was amazing and Mm -hmm. uh and it not well i mean it it certainly touched me but it touched her but anybody who was around her saw this this woman now with nice clothing and looking good and it was so cool and so every day even between the the days of beauty i would park her in front of that mirror and just say who's that pretty girl and she would just beam and it was lovely and so it, you find that these little things that we don't forget. Um, another big thing is, and it's sad, but as, as we get older, we don't hug anymore because you can't physically. It's very difficult to do it. And so we had a ritual where, uh, when I would get her up after I got her dressed, I had to lift her up to get her into the to wheelchair. And I said we did a morning hug, and we would just embrace each other, and it was lovely. And it was, you know, it got to a point where neither of us wanted to let go. And they're just beautiful moments that uh, I, I guess I didn't want my family members to miss out on. Now they can read about them. But it, it, they were just lovely. And, and it, uh, yeah, so there's small things that you learn uh, kind of on the fly. Again, I wasn't a parent. I didn't have to I maybe change some diapers and nieces and nephews along the way, but certainly not every day and several times a day. And um, those little, if you could do the little positive things in between, because we all respond to touch. My mom especially uh, responded to touch. She didn't talk a lot um, in those later years, but she responded to touch and uh, those little gestures and things like that. And it was just kind of beautiful.
1: That's lovely. So, so you have all these moments with your mother, and, and you said that you're taking videos, you're writing them down. What was your collection like, you know, when you finally had? The, the beginnings of this memoir, was it like a binder? Was it desktop? You know?
2: It's all on the computer. Well, no, there's notepads and, and, uh, and, and then certainly a lot of it would, then I would transfer to the computer. Uh, mm. but iPhone, like if I wasn't uh, uh, near my pad or something, I'd do a quick text a note for, uh, on the iPhone. So, um, I kept all these things. Now I'll tell you, so my mom passed in, um, August of 2014. And there's no way I could have written this thing sooner. Uh, it's just too much. I'm a very emotional guy, anyway, so there's uh, tears are not difficult to come by with uh, with me. So uh, it was it was very difficult. Um, so I moved to France, uh, I guess officially in 2017. I came here in 2016, stayed a good part, uh, and then had to go back for the final paperwork and stuff. And so um, while I was here. Uh, I, I had distance, emotional distance, and also distance, you know, miles distance and it, it helped. So, um, I probably started writing in, uh, seriously in 2017, but I would have, you know, ideas and, uh, anytime I came up with something, I would jot down a note so I wouldn't forget it. Um, and I do that sometimes in the middle of the night. I have, I have a pad next to my bed. Uh, I used to have a tape recorder cause I used to write jokes and do stand up in LA and, uh, um, I would have a tape recorder and notes and the, you know, you got to a point where you couldn't read the notes because you're writing in the dark and it's like you needed to be a, uh, a, a code breaker. And then I would, then I would do the, the, tape recorder and then you listen to it in the morning and the tape recorder just as bad as the notes. It's like, oh. and you go, no, I let it was genius. I forgot it. So now I'm very, I'm well, uh, I'm pretty skilled at writing in the dark and not writing over the same, you know, line every time. So I'm I'm pretty good. So I would constantly do notes and like for this, um, uh, I've got a couple other books in mind. And so I've got lots and lots of notes that I've, you know, while writing this one for my mom, I said, Oh, this would be great. More, more appropriate for my dad's book or for this other thing. Um, so uh that was very good because I did do a you know while editing this book uh I think the last edit I did I cut out I think 4000 words and a lot of that can go into my dad's book. Oh wow. Well uh, so it was uh yeah we did a lot of thinning out at the end and that was uh with my editor and the publisher and stuff like that but I I asked you you, you read these things you know as you're writing several times I mean just dozens and dozens and dozens of times. And then you're reading and you're going, you know, this really, nobody cares about this thing. I renovated the entire house while I was there. So I not only wanted to restore my mom's dignity, I wanted to restore dignity to our home because it was kind of run down at that point. And so I had those skills. And so um, I renovated from the basement to the top, a, com- a complete uh, uh, do-over. And um, uh, I forgot where I was going with that one. Returning the dignity
1: to the house. No. And one,
2: yeah. <laughs>
1: <laughs> well, actually, um, that kind of leads me to my next question anyway, so that's great. Yeah. Um, you talked about how you had some pieces that you're like, okay, well, this is better for my dad. Um, and what about the other pieces? How did you decide to cut certain things and keep certain things as you're editing?
2: Okay. Well, so first uh, uh, the, I wrote the the three and a half journey in chronological order. Because that was easy. I had that, and I had those notes, but I had that. That, that was never, I don't think it'll leave my uh, memory. So I wrote all that out and said, okay, so that is, it's not, let's say, a documentary. It's not, uh, some, it's kind of maybe boring for people. And I said, okay, so uh, on this particular chapter, let's say it was the opening chapter, which I call the call. So everything changed when my brother gave me that that phone call about my mom. And I said, okay, so let's go through uh, things about the house, uh, my upbringing, and things like that, let's say in that chapter. And then how do I um, reinforce that with uh, a, a flashback or, or, or backstory? And then, um, and so I kind of did that, but I think my biggest str- uh, struggle with this book was structure. So the chronological part was not an issue, but to put, the backstories in the right places where people who were not familiar with those, uh, was, was difficult. And that's why I needed fresh eyes. Um, uh, but I got it in, in, pretty good shape. Um, and there's a lot of humor in it too. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't this sentimental, whatever thing, um, or, or just a, a rigid how to book. It, it was, there's a, there's a, people say they laugh out loud and they cry out loud. It's, it's, uh, it's got a nice variety to it. So um, uh, so that I, I think was the, the, the hardest thing was finding those stories. But I have a, a, a pretty good memory. I have memories from when I was two years old that are pretty vivid. And um, once you start writing and you open that door, it's amazing what pops out. You know, you go, wait a minute. Oh, my gosh, this is great. And this would help this particular chapter. And then you then you then it just kind of floods out. Um, and so I uh, just let it I uh, just wrote all this stuff. Just let it go. Let the let the mind just let, vent and, and get it out. And then you, then you have to do a lot of honing and honing. But then you also have to figure out, OK, maybe this doesn't go here. And so we did a lot of I had a lot of uh, really short chapters. Because I uh, people's attention spans or whatever, but if I had a subject, I would cover it, and sometimes it would be three or four paragraphs, and we move on. Um, and with my publisher, they said, you know, you got this talking about food, this talking about food, and this talking about food. Uh, it was maybe three years difference, and they said, can we combine all the food things? And at first, I was a little resistant, but then I said, you know what? It makes sense for someone who's not familiar with me or, or where these events are actually take place, to put all the food together. And so we did a lot of combining. Uh, again, uh, uh, this, the structure for me was the hardest thing. Uh, but once you get those notes and they make sense, I was pretty open to it because, um, yeah. So anyway, so I got it in, in pretty good shape and had, a, I, I think, a unique voice. Um And then it was off to look for publishers. I didn't want to self-publish. I wanted to be a a published author. And um, at this point, I'm in my 60s, and I started sending out the manuscript to to agents and publishers. Now I'm in France, so uh, I didn't realize this was an issue, but – uh, you, you, I did a lot of research on the publishers and agents and they say, oh, we take such careful consideration of every submission we get and blah, blah. And then 12 seconds later, you get an email saying no. So that was the careful consideration, the 10 to 12 seconds on some of these things. And so they just say, yeah, you know, that's just part of the business. I get this because in Hollywood, you, you, you're certainly used to rejection and all that same. Just the, the difficulties of trying to stand out amongst the crowd. So this one publisher, and I don't know why, they rejected me again very quickly. And I did re- enough research, I guess, where I really liked these people. So I contacted them and said, let me ask you a quick, because all my emails and on the manuscript was all France. Um, so I said, does it, my living in France have anything to do with you saying No. And they said, yes, foreign authors don't understand American marketing. And I said, I'm from Jersey. I know marketing. And they said, okay, send us the manuscript. (laughs) So all those other no's could have been as soon as they saw an address in France thinking I was a French author and that was it. Oh, Without wow. looking at anything, which I thought was interesting because in the, uh, the, the, the quick blurb I said, I think it would say, you know, move back to his New Jersey home. Anyway, I sent the manuscript to these, uh, this publisher, uh, and they wrote back and they said, our acquisition editor really likes your voice, thinks the story has a great potential and it's very timely. So, but she has notes and it was a test. And I said, "Bring it on! Send me the note." And the notes were great. I had no problem with any of them. So I spent about three weeks rewriting, and sent it back in. And they said, "Okay, now we're ready to go." And uh, yeah, so it was, uh, uh, yeah, it was, it was nice. And they're, they're, they're great. I really like them. Uh, they're not a big house. It's right life publishing, and they're a, they're an imprint of boutique of quality books publishing. and they're they're small and they they don't take a lot of books on, and it's not like throw it all against the wall. they they really believe in the books that they publish, and they they do their work, and I've been I think they may be learning a little bit from me because uh, the marketing has been insane. I've done about one hundred and forty. Uh, teaser videos that I've been, uh, releasing on, um, all the social media platforms, but I also have a YouTube channel. If people Google a cup of tea on a commode, they'll see it everywhere. So it's, we're on, uh, everything from Facebook to my own, my own website, but YouTube channel, TikTok, uh, uh, Pinterest, uh, uh, Instagram. All, everything and so it, it may be a little too much, but the videos have been fun and and so when I uh, I post those we usually get a pretty good response and the um, uh, and then I have two Facebook pages I have a Facebook page for the book which has I think over twenty five thousand followers and then the uh, my personal page which I found I, I wasn't promote at all from that but I said let's let's start doing it and now it's over twenty five hundred. Followers on that, and most of those are from my hometown in New Jersey. Uh-huh. You know, you get those friend suggestions. Yeah. And so almost, I the, the village I grew up with was twenty five thousand people, so not big in American terms, but half the people must be on Facebook because I keep getting things. These people live in Ridgewood. You should be, you know, friend them, and so it's amazing. So it's great, and then all these people from. You know, once I left high school, I never went back, really. I went to one high school reunion, but my mom had a medical issue that night, so I missed most of it. And um, uh, so they're all coming out of the woodwork and it's it's uh, it's it's been very nice and very supportive.
1: Wow. And so you've been doing all your own marketing and just creating that initiative for your book.
2: I've been doing, I've been doing a lot on my end, sure, but, um, the publishers have been too. They've been, they've been great. Uh, but, uh, yeah, I, I, I go a little crazy with it. So, um, almost everybody, and, and if they listen to this, they're going to know, uh, everybody on my personal page gets a personal invite to buy the book or at least to take a, take a look at it. And so uh, 2,500 people takes a while. So like every three months, and most of the people have been great, and a lot of people have said they bought the book and they haven't re- getting reviews is like pulling teeth but the people the 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 personal notes and messages I get from people are just humbling because uh-huh. it's lovely it's uh, the, the the reviews have been great um, uh, by uh, almost all five stars ninety something percent are have all been five star reviews and the sales are going pretty well um but the um Just the the message, I mean, this touches home with a lot of people. And it's, it's, it's great to hear that. And hopefully we'll, you know, people get some benefit at it. But there are a few people that kind of go, uh, just stop sending me emails. Just a few though. But, you know, they, they're not happy people. Right. They either have mother issues or, I mean, once every 90 days, really, is this too much? So yeah, you're, you're a friend and you follow me, so I'm sorry. I just gotta, I've got to spread the word because this is right. a, I think it's a good book with a good message. So
1: exactly, yeah, and I think that's kind of just with all of marketing. You're always gonna hit. you have the hit and miss.
2: Oh my um, gosh, yeah, 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 yeah.
1: So I definitely wanted to ask this question, you know, which is more about the memoir side. Um, I know we're, we're just about a time, so my apologies. Um. I just wanted to know when you started writing your memoir. Obviously, some of the hard stuff is going to come out, um, but you didn't let that stop you. How did you push through the, the the dark parts, the hard parts? You know, having to go back in time. You
2: you cry. Uh, you you let it go. I mean, there's there, a lot of times I just I, I'm so glad I'm alone because nobody wants to see this. It, it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, in in the book, I I joke with. After my mom's funeral, I finally let loose. I, I let it go. But the rest of it, I held on. And, uh, uh, you know, I, I, I was, it was a, it was a, I guess a, a good ending and stuff. But, um, at the, uh, after the reception, uh, everybody else left and I sat in my mom's bedroom. <laughs> And I let it go, and uh I said this was old Testament. it was ridiculous. <laughs> the flooding that came out of my eyes was mm-hmm. silly, so you got to push on i mean you have the you have the the goal you so you got to get through this now if you need to take a break, certainly take a break but uh the the end goal I think was the the most important thing so you um you you focus on the whether it's the light at the end of the tunnel or the finished book and and um Uh, that's what you got to do. So the, the pushing through is, it was difficult. And I, and I, I acknowledge that in the book, I said, it took me years to be able to do this and get it done. It wasn't going to be a fast thing. So it was about probably five or six years, uh, to be able to do it. And now I'm doing the audio book. And I thought that was going to be a bloody mess because I'm recording the book here. I have a studio I set up here and, um, it's you know I, I, there were a few chapters in the beginning I was doing and they're not even emotional chapters but I would have some thought and I just have to stop. Um, but now I've got most of it done. I'm doing the editing and now uh, I've got to go in and and and, and do a, a, a number of fixes in all the chapters and stuff like that. And I pretty I handle it pretty well, but I think because of the distance. Mm-hmm. And right. knowing, you know, I want this done. I want it, I want it to be available by Christmas. So I gotta, I gotta get some work done. So you focus. And that's where I think where the acting training comes in as well. Right. Um, so.
1: Wow. Yeah. Thank you. Um, so before we, we jump into where everyone can find you and your book, was there any other words that you want to share for aspiring writers who are going to be facing their memoirs?
2: Well, the memoir, well, I had, uh, I'll, I'll give a plug to Marianne Roach Smith. Um, when writing this, I, I read some memoirs and then, uh, uh, somehow I found her. She's a wonderful memoir teacher and she has a, a book, a good book, uh, on writing memoir because it's, a memoir is very different from writing a, a novel. Oh. Or, or, or autobiography or something like that. So it's a yeah. it's a, a new form, and I wanted to study it because I wanted it to be good. So um, uh, I'll, I'll give a plug out for that, and then, um, um, yeah. So study, I studied like crazy and then, uh, read a lot of good, uh, uh, examples of, of, memoirs that, that I thought were quite good. And, uh, and then sometimes you break the rules. I don't know if, uh, I don't know all the rules and stuff, but I wanted to write this, uh, it, people say it's very conversational. It says uh, some of the, the, um, uh, uh, reviews have said it's like sitting down having a cup of tea with Mark uh, and listening to all his stories and stuff like that. So uh, the tea is appropriate because that was my mom's favorite drink. And that's where the uh, the title comes from, because sometimes uh, Mother Nature took a little longer that was comfortable. So to pass the time, I offered mom a cup of her favorite beverage and it became a hit. So a cup of tea on the commode is the title.
1: Love that. I love that. Thank you. And where can everyone find you and then, of course, find your wonderful memoir?
2: Well, uh, well, thank you for that. Uh, if they Google a cup of tea on the commode, again, they'll see all the different platforms. But a cup of tea on the org is the official website. Uh, but the YouTube channel is a cup of tea. Uh, Facebook is a cup of tea. Uh, on the commode, it's, in it, and, and, Twitter, now X, or whatever. So if they Google that, they'll see it. So it's on Amazon is the best bet. But if you go to the website, under the book, um, I have this, uh, app which has, uh, all the stores because it's available in ebook, paperback, and large print. And hopefully by the, uh, Christmas time, the, uh, also the audio book. And, uh, so if they hit a button, they'll see all those things at all the different stores. Cause some people have some issues with Amazon, which I understand, but then it's in Barnes and Noble and all these other, uh, the, that's wonderful about the, uh, the publishers. They, they, they've got a distributor in Chicago and this stuff's, this book is all over the world. I'm getting, uh, I, I see stores that in languages I don't understand. I have no no clue what they are. But uh, I've had people in Spain and Germany and Switzerland and France review the book, which is in England, uh, which is lovely. But, uh, you know, the, the biggest audience is certainly uh, the United States.
1: Congratulations. Yeah. That's Thank amazing. you.
2: Well, yeah, if they want a good laugh, go to the YouTube stuff, which is very fun. <laughs>
1: I love that. Well, thank you so much, Mark. Um, this has been lovely. I know that this is going to help inspire writers who are also going to be facing their memoirs. You know, we get a lot of that on the show. Um, so from the How to Write a Book podcast, thank you for being here. Um, it's
2: it my pleasure. I hope people got some, you know, not just the plugging my book, but got got some tips.
1: Definitely. I, I I feel inspired, so thank you for sharing your story. Um, Everyone, that is Mark Stephen Poro, author of A Cup of Tea on the Commode, My Multitasking Adventures of Caring for Mom and How I Survived to Tell the Tale. Thank you again, Mark, and we can't wait to see your next book about your father. We would love to have you back.
2: Super. Okay, great. All right, thanks again. Thanks. Take care.
0: And that's a wrap for today's episode of the How to Write a Book Podcast. Thanks so much for tuning in and I hope you enjoyed the conversation. If you want to keep up with me and my work, check out the website blackheartedstudios.com. That's www.blackheartedstudios.com. And follow me on Instagram at Masiel Writes. That's at M-A-S-S-I-E-L Writes. As a book coach and publisher, I'm passionate about helping aspiring authors bring their stories to life. So if you you've been dreaming of writing a book and don't know where to start, head to my website and let's chat. You get a free 30 minutes on me. Thanks again for listening and don't forget to subscribe and leave a review. I'll see you in the next episode. Thanks.